In the early days of our country, as families wrestled directly with the land, they knew how dependent they were upon the goodness of their Creator. Today, we are still just as dependent, but we can easily forget and become self-reliant. How can we resist this tendency to sit in our modern high-rises and forget the source of our prosperity? This is Truth Encounter, and as we join our study leader Dave Wurtson today, I want you to picture Dave in front of his congregation in Texas with a large picnic basket in his hand. Why in the world would a minister carry a picnic basket to church? Let's listen and find out. One of the great powers about camping is the fact that it enables you to get together with a group of people away from your regular run-of-the-mill schedule, enables you to break some of the pace that you've been living under, and you get away with God's people, and you just spend some time focusing on God and focusing on His Word and focusing on prayer. And that's one of the rhythms of the Christian life. In fact, in the Old Testament, God made His people kind of go camping three times a year. He made them gather together around the spring of the year and the Passover time. He made them come to the central sanctuary and they would camp out and they would be there in the the city of Jerusalem and they would worship the Lord for about a week. And then he let a couple months go by. He let all the farmers go back and they had to get their crops in. And when they got their summer crop finished, they gathered together again at the feast called Pentecost, the 50-day feast. 50 days after Pentecost, they gathered together again and they would celebrate again. Then the Lord let them get their crops, you know, that needed to be harvested in the fall and let them get their fields prepared for the winter months. And then when they brought that fall harvest in again, in the late fall, he would have them gather for the Feast of Tabernacles and they would all come back to Jerusalem. And this time they would literally camp out in what was called the Feast of Booze. You say, why did they do that? You take time to remember the blessing of what God has done for you. You take time to think back. What would my life be like if I'd never met the Lord? And what happened in old Israel, the Lord made them do that. In fact, in old Israel, what the Lord made a a farmer do is when his crops were in, in fact, when the first fruits of the harvest came in, he made these Israelites farmer get a basket. And I borrowed one of the baskets from home. And he would make that farmer put into his basket a representation of all the blessing that the Lord had brought through his crops. In other words, if he, was, uh, you know, if he had planted a barley harvest, then he would put some barley and wheat in his basket, and that would represent his harvest. If he had some bees, and uh, the Lord had blessed them with a land flowing with milk and honey, then he would have, and this is literal honey that came right out of that house that we dedicated last night, In fact, it used to be in the wall of that house, which tells you something about the work that needed to be done. So this is definitely Midlothian honey, right out of the wall of an old house, okay? So he would make them, the Lord would make them bring some of that honey. And they would just bring different bread, obviously, and the ancient world was the staple meal. He would make the farmer put into a basket like this a representation of of all the blessing of his crops. Now I want you to stop and think about this. This Israelite farmer in the Old Testament that gathers a harvest like this. What's his history? As this man thinks back over the centuries, what are some of the things that he could remember about his heritage? Let me have some of you raise your hand and tell me. What are some of the things that he could think about of his heritage? What was in the past? 
What was true about his people in the past? This farmer that's now bringing the honey and the representation of, of the first fruits of his, of his fields. What was in their past? Deliverance from Egypt. That's one of the major things. How many of you thought about deliverance from Egypt? Now just stop and think of it. Let's try to transpose ourselves and let's pretend that we're all Israelites and this is our heritage. What was it like to live in Egypt, do you think? Slavery. What is it like to live in slavery? It was oppressing. You know, if you were, those of you that are men, what would be some of the work projects that you worked on down in Egypt? The pyramids, you know, probably working on some of, you know, on some of Pharaoh's buildings. How many of you men and women this week got up and went to work? How many of you men and women got up and went to work, okay? How many of you, when you went to work, you had someone that whipped you during the day? Don't, please don't raise your hand if they did. Are they above? Okay. Now just imagine that, you know, you've got to put yourself back. And you see, if I had a black audience here today, if I had like Tony Evans' church's audience, then this would become very real and powerful. In fact, Martin Luther King used this kind of imagery to just really move his people. You know, and the deliverance from Egypt is very important in that culture. Why? Because in the history of the black people in the United States of America, tragically, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, there's a whole period of history when they were very much enslaved. When they couldn't get up in the morning and choose which job they would do. They couldn't choose where they were going to go. They couldn't choose where they're going to live. All the things that we all take for granted. And they were under an oppressor. And, and, and a people that have had that kind of a history, there's people in the world today that have experienced that kind of oppression. Those of us that have not experienced that kind of slavery have a hard time identifying the tremendous power of having that in your background. Now, if you're a slave, when you're in that enslaved condition, what chance is there that you'll ever be free? What chance is there that you'll ever own land? What chance is there that you'll ever have your own house? How many remember when you moved into that house, the joy and the celebration like of that very first night when you spent time in that house? And I'll never forget when Mary and I completing building our house with Bill and Joanne Brown and Wally and Elaine McWhorter and several others that helped us. I'll never forget that first night when we moved all of our stuff in and we gathered together around a dining room table there in our, in our dining room for the first time. There's, there's a tremendous joy. But can you imagine being a slave? What is the chance that a slave would ever be able to have that joy? Ever be able to have their own house? Even more, you know, impossible, what is the chance that the slave will ever have his own land? Will ever be able to have his own crops to plant? Not a chance in the world. But you see, that's what happened in old Israel. And this is the power of the Old Testament faith. I want you to open your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 26, and you can read it there. Deuteronomy chapter 26 talks about an Israelite farmer. And he brings a basket like this, and he comes with his family down in Jerusalem, and he probably leaves his wife and kids in the court of the women. He walks into the court of the men, and at the court of the men there's a priest, and he meets the priest. And what he does when he meets this priest is that he brings his basket that I've been describing, and in that basket are all the first fruits of the land, and he hands these things to the priest, and then he says one of the most powerful testimonies of the Old Testament faith. And I want you to, I want you to feel this ceremony. I want you to try to go back 
and think about the incredible power of this man's testimony. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, we have the ceremony of the dedication of the first fruits. In fact, some commentators feel that this is the very first time that the Israelite farmer has been able to get some crops from his land. And it's one of the very first ceremony because in the second part of this chapter, it's going to talk about after three years, they're supposed to bring their tithe, which in old Israel they would dedicate to the poor. Let's read. When you have entered the land of the Lord your God, the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Remember, in his past, there was no chance that he would receive that land, but now the Lord is making a promise, you're going to receive that land. And you have now taken possession of it. And you've settled into it, just like moving into a new home, only now they've moved into a new land, the land of promise. What I want you to do, God says in verse 2, is take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land, the Lord your God has given you, and I want you to put it in the basket. Then I want you to go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, which in the history of Israel later became which city? The city of Jerusalem. That I want you to take it to the place which eventually became the city of Jerusalem that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And I want you to say to the priest in office at the time, I declare to you today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The very first thing that I want you to see that these Old Testament Israelite saints did is that they declared that the Lord had kept his promise. You know, one of the things that we should be doing, we should be declaring that the Lord has kept his promise. In fact, I want you to think of some of the ways that the Lord has kept his promise to you. There's incredible stories about the way the Lord has kept his promise. You see, when this Israelite was down in Egypt, when he was enslaved down in this oppressive land, there wasn't a chance in the world that he would ever possess land. But as this Israelite farmer walked forward in the temple of Jerusalem and had in his basket the evidence that he owned land and he had now received the blessing of the land, what was impossible had become reality. What about in your own life? What's your impossible story? You see, for me, sometimes it's easy to forget what my life would be like if I didn't know Jesus Christ. Because I came to know Christ like a lot of the kids... So to be honest with you, I hardly even know what it's like not to know Christ. But you know, I can look back over a heritage. You see, a lot of the Israelites that brought this fruit in the basket, a lot of them couldn't remember being slaves in Egypt either. A lot of them had enjoyed the blessing. And what this chapter calls them to do is to remember their entire history. Some of you need to think back and remember what your grandparents were like before they came to know Christ. Like in my own family. My own grandparents hardly knew Christ at all. They were, they were kind of nominal Sunday morning Christians. Then they dropped out of it completely. My own dad was raising his family, my dad's family. My, my grandmother took him to Coney Island, taught him to smoke on a Sunday afternoon. That was her parental mama's influence on her son. Taught him to smoke a little bit, taught him to drink. My dad's major memories of a Sunday morning at lunch, like a Sunday dinner, was to get together and just fight and argue about politics. I mean, just cuss and yell. In fact, everyone would get so animated and so angry that the whole dinner would just blow apart. 
That's what my dad remembers about his childhood. My dad remembers like when he was like 10 and 11, 12 years of age, he just went out to work and started doing paper routes and all kinds of things because his parents, you know, would hardly give him anything. It was just a rough background on the streets of Brooklyn on the other side of, this tr of the tracks. That could have been what my heritage was. But at 19 years of age, my dad got down on his knees in the middle of the night like I've often explained to you. And my dad received Christ as his personal savior and my heritage became totally different after that. What about your story? One of our radio listeners told the story of being raised up in North Dakota. She was just wild as, as a hatter, just all over the place as a teenager. Her parents didn't know what to do with her. And Terry was a beautiful young girl, and she ran off to Mexico. Of all places from North Dakota, she ran off with a guy down to Mexico. Somehow, by hook or by crook, she made it back across the border, ended up back in North Dakota, got all involved in drugs and, out, and you know, all kinds of stuff in high school, immorality. Uh, finally, her uncle that flew for Delta Airlines called her up and said, man, you need to get down here, brought her down to Florida and had her live in his home. Things got so bad for her up in North Dakota that she realized, man, I need help. And uh, she went to live with her uncle for a few, maybe a few months or so. Her uncle led her to the Lord Jesus. Letter to Christ and this incredible story of, of how she had come to know Christ. She, did, she described to us one day as we were sitting with, with she and her husband. And after she got grounded a little bit, she lived with her uncle for a few more weeks. She said, man, I need to go back to North Dakota. I need to go back home and tell my friends. So she went back home. And she thought she was strong enough, but she wasn't. Man, she got back in with her old friends. And man, drug abuse is a heavy thing. It's a very powerful pull. So she got pulled right back into that drug abuse got pulled right back with all the friends that she was involved with and went right down the tubes again. In fact, she met the guy that's now her husband. He was a college student. He was studying nuclear engineering. She kind of met him uh, kind of in a, a very interesting way, and she kind of lied to her parents about several things. But the, the, just to make a long story short, she ended up moving in with the guy that's now her husband who was going to one of the universities and three of his friends. So here's this girl that's living with four guys. Now, what chances are in the world that Jesus is going to do anything in this situation? Some of you see kids at universities and kids in schools that are in those kind of situations, and you wonder, like, what in the world is God going to do here? Well, finally, they got married, and after they got married, then she got all convicted because somewhere down the line she'd heard that you shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, so she told her husband that she'd been living with for several months already that she thought she'd done the wrong thing now they were married because he was an unbeliever. Well, he hardly knew what an unbeliever was, so she began to explain that to him. Ten years of life went by. They held their marriage together, three beautiful kids. Uh, they were doing really well, and as far as life was concerned, he got a good job. And yet he didn't know the Lord. And ten years of life went by, but one Sunday the Lord began to really work in his life for her husband. and invited Jesus into his heart. The next day when he came home from work, he told all the kids to gather around that he had something really important to tell them. And he said, there's something different about daddy. And the kids were yelling, well, did you get a new haircut? Did you lose your job? Did you get a new job? You know, what's going on? He said, no. He said, last night, I want you all to know that now we're a family that's one in Christ. Now, that's an incredible story of grace. I mean, here's a girl that's in high school, you know, wild the wet hand. And yet now, in fact, she's been right into us. Just once every couple weeks, she, she goes to prisons and witnesses. She has a whole Bible study among girls. She goes for walks with other women in her, her block and is leading several of them to Christ, just really being used of Christ. The reason I told you that story is there's tremendous power in hearing about what we once were without Christ. 
There's great power in sharing what we once were without Christ, but then rejoicing in what we are in Christ. Like the Old Testament Israelite, can you declare today, the Lord has brought me into a place of blessing. If you know Christ as your Savior, then every one of you have a reason for being here. And what I really want to challenge you to think about is what's going to really get you into this Jesus thing is when you stop treating the gathering together of believers like going to a movie. You sit back in a nice, comfortable chair, and, 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 and we even gripe about the kind of chairs that are there. And then you evaluate whether or not the story does it to you, whether or not it's, it's really accomplished, whether it entertains you the way it ought to. And you either conclude at the end of it, well, that was a lousy one or that was a good one. But very few of us think of going to participate. Very few of us think about going there actively. And what I want you to see is that in the Old Testament, we need to get a hold of it again in the New Testament, is that the gathering together of God's people was an active time. It was a time when they were involved, where they confessed what God had done. You should remember your salvation history, and you should declare. You should declare openly. You should openly confess what God has done for you. And there's great power in it as we hear one another's stories about the way God has kept his promises to us. If you're down, if this spiritual thing isn't working for you today, if you feel like Jesus is a million miles away, I almost guarantee you that you've forgotten your salvation history, that you've forgotten to remember where you've come from and the way the Lord has provided for you and the way the Lord has met your need and the incredible things that have done. And I want to share with you a group of slaves a group of slaves that get together who now own land. A group of slaves that get together who now own houses. A group of slaves that now have their own place and they're being blessed. When they get together, they're thankful. They explode with joy because it's a miracle. Something that should have never taken place has taken place. And this is what this Old Testament Israelite saint would confess as he, as he recited these words. As the priest received the blessing of the land, the tangible evidence, the objective, tangible, concrete evidence that God had given him the land, and here were the crops to prove it, he would recite this. It says in verse 4, The priest shall take the basket from your hands, and he will set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a perishing, wandering Aramean. What he's describing here is remembering the history of Jacob. Jacob had to run away from home because he lied to his brother and, and deceived his father and stole the blessing. Remember the stories from the early chapters of Genesis? Jacob became a wandering Aramean. He went up to live in, the, in, in Aram, Laban. Uh, his uncle was an Aramean. Jacob received his wives... Not just one wife, but he received two wives, a polygamous thing. Rebecca, he receives Rachel and Leah from this place called Aram. And what the writer here is describing is, just think of my unlikely heritage. Here is this guy named Yaakov, the heel, the guy that tricked everybody, the guy that conned everybody. He ends up living up in Aram and marries two Arameans. And he's just a deceiver and a trickster. And then he jumps ahead in the story. He says he was a perishing Aramean. What it means is that he has a tendency to wander away. The word that's used there for perishing means that you're like a sheep. You wander away. And the chances of ever coming back on your own accord are almost zilch. 
So he's saying, my heritage, my family, instead of saying, you know, my father was the king of Israel and he was a mighty man or my father was a great warrior, my father was General Dwight D. Eisenhower or something like that, this guy is standing up before everyone and saying, my father was a real you-know-what. There wasn't a chance that this guy would make it. In fact, when he went down into Egypt, he was perishing. Jacob said himself, I'm an old, feeble man. Now, when I ask you a question, just think of the Old Testament history. Here we have Jacob, who is, through most of his life, he's a trickster, a con man. He's now late in life, he's ill, and he's going down to Egypt to the most powerful nation of the ancient Near East. He's going down just 70 in number. What chance is there in Egypt that his family will survive? Hardly any. You see, what happens to people, in fact, this happened throughout the Babylonian history, throughout the Egyptian history, different groups would come in and they would just be amalgamated among the people. It's what happened in our own country. Just think of the melting pot of the United States of America, the way everything just kind of melts in together. That's what this writer is reminding himself of and the people he's declaring this to. He's saying, when my father Jacob took 70 of his family down to Egypt, there wasn't a chance in the world that they would become a great and mighty and powerful people. But notice what he says. They did. Down in Egypt, it says, my father was this perishing, wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with a few people, and he lived there, but what happened? A miracle took place. They became a great, and they became a powerful and a mighty and numerous people. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. You know, God delights in taking a little thing, something that we think is very, very small, and exploding it and making it something that has great influence. In fact, I think it's one of the things that we as believers really forget. We despise the day of little things and therefore we miss out on the day of really great and powerful things. And we forget that it all depends upon God's grace. Why did they become the mighty people of God? What do you think they became a mighty nation down in Egypt? Because God made a promise. What did God promise Abraham? What did God promise Father Abraham? They would become what? Like the stars and like what else? Okay. Now, what promise? So that's an Old Testament Israelite promise. That they would become a great and powerful nation. They would become great in number. What's the promise that God has made to you? That we're going to have a new home in heaven. From a human standpoint, what are the chances that that will ever take place? But as we think about the Old Testament history, there wasn't a chance in the world that Jacob would become a great and powerful nation, was there? But he did. Historically, the objective truth is that he did. What the New Testament tells us is that God has given you similar promises. God has promised you that if you proclaim the good news, if you proclaim the gospel, that it's going to be like a powerful seed. In fact, the Lord Jesus used the illustration again and again and again that the planting of the gospel is like planting a seed in the ground. And some of the seed, you know, some of the good news that you share is going to fall on ground where it's hard and it's stony and it doesn't, doesn't penetrate at all. It's just taken away by Satan, just like that. Some of you are going to plant other seed and a person is going to really respond. They're going to be all excited about it. And they're going to be with you, maybe doing some discipleship with you for a few weeks. And they're going to be really turned on for this thing called Jesus Christ. And then it's going to be gone. And they're going to fall back and be just even worse than they were before. 
It tells us there's going to be another group that they're going to go on for quite a long period, but then this life, this present life, is going to get them down. It's going to discourage them. It's going to hurt them. And they're going to wander away from the faith because they worry too much about just living in the here and now. But then it tells us about a fourth kind of ground, the very final ground, that's going to be a, a good ground. And you're going to plant the seed, and the seed's going to explode in people's lives, and they're going to do things that you could never imagine, and they're going to produce a crop that goes on a hundredfold, a thousandfold, ten thousandfold. You see, under the new covenant, it's not just the multiplication of stuff in a basket like bread. What it is, it's the multiplication. You are challenged to be sold out to Jesus, completely sold out to Him. Why should you do that? Because you need to decide if you believe that He's really the answer. If you believe that He can really deliver someone from slavery to sin. He can really deliver them from immorality. He can deliver them from pride. He can deliver them from alcohol abuse. He can deliver them from anything that you might imagine, the slavery to sin. We have to decide whether we're going to really believe that. And then we need, to, we need to commit ourselves to building our lives on that. How about it? Do you believe that if you sow the truth about Jesus by the way you live in your place of study or work, that it will ultimately generate a harvest that will last forever? One of the most powerful ways of sowing the seed is to have a thankful spirit for God's daily provisions. Dave will be discussing further with us the importance of reviewing our own pilgrimage with God to take time to look back at how He has provided. These times of remembrance give us courage to trust Him in the stress of the present. Sometime today, take some time to simply remember some of the powerful ways God has met your needs in the past and thank Him.